title of this message is The Purpose of Unity. We've been talking about unity for a long time. Uh, the theme of this message is the unity of the church points the world to God. So if you forget everything else that I say, hang on to that. The unity of the church points the world to God. Uh, we're three quarters of the way through Paul's initial straightforward appeal to the Corinthians back in chapter 1 uh, to be unified as a body. And Paul has been giving the theological foundation and groundwork for such an appeal. And in our passage from last week, Paul actually gave an end times reason for that appeal as well. Namely, that God is going to judge our works as believers. We are each of us, uh, we're each of us careful to build upon the community of faith using the gold, silver, precious stones of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and unity with one another? Or were we careless, building upon the foundation of Jesus uh, with wood, hay, and stubble of selfishness and pride and worldly wisdom and arrogance and in our relationships with one another. And so Paul says that the fire of God's judgment will disclose or reveal the source of our works and the motivation for our works. If our actions and our attitudes tore down the body, then our works will be burned up, it says. We will be saved, but as if through fire or by the skin of our teeth, to put it in today's lingo. However, if our actions and attitudes build up the body, then we will receive rewards that will bring praise and honor and glory to King Jesus. Now, some folks don't like the concept of rewards, right? Interesting topic in the Bible. Um, some would say, for by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. And so they conclude salvation is a gift of God, and all our good works are done by him. And our Christian walk is not about doing, but it's about being. And when Paul talks about rewards or wages, it's simply a metaphor, because anything we do is sourced in Jesus Christ, to which I'd respond, that is true. That is very true to a point. But God's word is written to us. People who live in space and time, people who have bodies and interact with matter and gravity, people who have a will and a mind, people who do or don't do, right? The Bible was written so we could understand who God is and what he has done for us. It was also written to be applied to the very real and earthly lives that we have. We go to work, we turn a wrench to earn a living, we take two-by-fours, we construct houses, we write code that makes computers do work for us, um, we take sheet metal, we form air handlers for warming our buildings, right? We, we run electrical wires, we care for the sick, we check the vitals of those who are injured, we fight fires, we protect those who live in the community, all those things. And the Bible was written for us, people that do things, right? Everyday folks who do. And Paul says, we are his, Jesus' workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, <clears throat> which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And whatever you do, he says, do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man. So God's word is full of this idea of, of doing, of receiving re, uh, rewards uh, for the things that we've done in our lifetime. God talks about it. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. The apostle John talks about it. It is true. Our salvation is not earned. Our salvation is a gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast. And Paul's talking about boasting in here a lot. So, but it's just as true that somehow in his great plan, in his predetermined way, God will reward us according to what we do for him and the, uh, with the lives and the gifts that he has given to us on planet Earth. He will reward us for the things that we do for him, but the things that we do for ourselves will burn up. What do these rewards look like? We don't know. God doesn't make it very clear at all. But here's the thing. 
When we think of rewards, we think of the reward as being 100% ours because we did all the work, right? That's how we look at it. But you see, any reward that we receive at the end of life will be received only because Jesus made it possible. Everything we receive is sourced in him. And Paul mentions that in chapter 4, verse 7. We'll get there in a week or so. But what's more, when we are kneeling before our Creator and receiving any kind of reward He might give to us, because Jesus is so glorious and He's so amazing, and we read a description about Him last week, our thoughts will be focused not on ourselves. Whatever we have, we'll we'll simply want to give back to Him because it is rightfully His anyway. Because He is the one who made it possible for us to even receive a reward. None of our good works originate with us. They all originate in him. And we are only able to do good so long as we have the mind of Christ in us. And so we'll take those rewards and we'll offer them back to Jesus because he's so totally worthy of it. In reality, Jesus is our reward. So true, we are saved by grace through faith and we are eternally secure in the loving hands of our Father because he is faithful, not because we are. At the same time, the things which we do in this life have eternal consequences, and the Bible talks about that. Either we will suffer loss and that we will have less to praise Jesus with, or we will receive a reward that we can offer back to him in worship of his glorious name. And on the heels of those two truths that we looked at last week, we're going to begin today by reading the next paragraph in 1 Corinthians 3. We read it last week. It's a surprising and startling statement that Paul makes in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So Paul calls the Corinthian church a temple and that God's Spirit lives in them. To the Corinthians living in Paul's day, this would have been a bold and almost foolish sounding statement. I want to explain. We first of all have to remember who Paul is talking to. He's already pointed out that the Corinthians were not very wise, not very powerful, not very noble even by the world standards. And there were a few Jews in their midst, but they were the type that had a reputation, if you know what I mean. Everyone in the church uh, had in a past because everyone in the church placed their faith in the gospel of Jesus in the past four to five years. They were a new congregation. They were first-generation Christians. None of them grew up in the faith, so to speak, whether that was Jew or Gentile. So they're all brand new Christians. And to put it bluntly, the Corinthian church was made up of mostly middle-class Gentile converts saved out of a lifestyle of sin and corruption, evil and brokenness, promiscuity, sensuality, and they're still living in one of the most decadent cities in the known world at the time. And these Jews and Gentiles with questionable pasts were fighting and quarreling with each other over their favorite leaders. And as we'll learn in a few weeks to come, they were still dealing with all the sins that they used to participate in as part of their culture, right? Adultery, fornication, theft, gluttony, intoxication, selfishness, arrogance, and self-promotion. And this ragtag group of people who believed simply in the murdered Messiah, the crucified son of the Almighty God, were called by Paul God's temple. Quite shocking, right? Paul calls them God's temple. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. Now, the Jewish temple was the hub of worship for the true God. God himself designed it in the sense that he determined that there would be a holy of holies, a holy place, a courtyard with an altar, and God designed it in this way on purpose. The tabernacle and the temple were earthly replicas of heavenly realities. 
Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, not into the temple on earth, right? Which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Okay, so there's this idea of, of the temple and the tabernacle were copies of heavenly things. Hebrews 8.5 says, They, the priests, and the tabernacle, the temple, serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. All right? And Moses received a pattern from God of how to build uh, the tabernacle so it would be just like what God had designed. And because of this understanding and this knowledge, the Jewish temple was not just viewed by the Jews and surrounding nations as an amazing tourist attraction, though it was, um, but it was a place where people went for the purpose of encountering the true God because God promised that his presence would dwell there. I want you to listen to how David describes it in Psalm 63, too. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Again, in Psalm 65, verse 4, David says, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. All right? God's temple is something that was believed would last forever. Psalm 78, 69 says he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. So there's this idea that, that it's God's dwelling place, it's founded forever. And it's interesting because if God's temple is something that was believed would last forever, I want you to think about when Israel rebelled against God and worshipped other gods and God sent the Babylonians to destroy his temple. That was a big deal. Right? It was more than just the destruction of a building. It was symbolic of the removal of God's presence from among his chosen people. This was the lowest point in ancient Israel's history. Never again would the physical temple in Jerusalem be built to the degree that it was by King Solomon. But then after the exiles returned from Babylon, there was a strange prophecy from the prophet Zechariah who prophesied to those who came back to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and I want you to listen to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 to 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out of his place, and he will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and will bear royal honor and will sit and rule on his throne. And there will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now our friend Dave Field uh, talked about this earlier this summer when he preached from Psalm 110. The idea of a throne and a temple is not a normally, norm, normal earthly scene. It is reminiscent of a heavenly scene. Interesting, the man whose name is Branch, we know that's Jesus, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Interesting. He will bear royal honor. He will sit and rule. A priest will be on his throne. There will be a council of peace. And this is all very interesting language when you think about it. Now I want you to listen to Isaiah's description of a scene that he saw in the temple. Isaiah 6, 1-3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. Two covered their face, two covered their feet. Two co he flew and he called one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's a heavenly scene if you look in Revelation a throne in a temple, right? And again, Isaiah captured the heart of God when he said this in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? 
And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you hear that? Even in this Old Testament passage, God was hinting at something that Paul makes explicit here. God has never been concerned with a brick-and-mortar temple because brick-and-mortar cannot contain him. As well, God's throne and his temple are in the same sentence again in that passage. This, his presence is in a temple also assumes his rule and his reign. But God is everywhere present, so his glory and his reign cover the whole earth. But Isaiah's last statement is what is a surprising twist. In essence, God was saying, through Isaiah, I don't care about brick and mortar temples. None of them can contain me anyway, but this is what I'm looking for. The place where I want to dwell, in the hearts of the humble and contrite, in the hearts of those who will tremble at my word. You see, God has always been concerned with a dwelling place, somewhere of dwelling. But that somewhere that God desires to dwell is the place that he himself created. He desires to dwell in the hearts of men and women who are his by faith. And this is why he created us. And this is why he is saving us. And Paul makes this clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, And he, Jesus, came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Jesus preached peace, peace with God, reconciliation, right? And peace with one another. And this was, peace was accomplished through his own crucifixion. And the result of our faith in Jesus' crucifixion on our behalf is that God the Father saves us and joins us together with everyone else whom he has saved, forming us, forming his kingdom, his household, his living, breathing, worshiping, loving, growing, holy temple, the dwelling place for God. And God, through Jesus, is fulfilling his promises. He is building his temple right now. One human being at a time, one local congregation at a time, into a magnificent living structure that radiates his glory throughout the whole earth. And this is what we, what I, what you, what KMCC is part of. It is glorious. It is bigger than us. God dwells in our midst. And this is why unity is so important. The unity of the church, like a temple, points the world to God. And so Paul's reference to the Corinthian church, and thus to us as a church, as being the temple was both surprising and a sobering statement. This truth is a joyous, and yet it's a weighty responsibility, right? The issue was the Corinthian church were being a poor temple for God. They were not pointing people to the glorious God that they represented. Instead, through their division and their arrogance and their jealousy and their strife, they were pointing people to humans, to other people. The purpose of a temple is not to point people to people. Its purpose is to point people to God. Our purpose is to point people to God. 
And the Corinthians were sadly building their church with wood, hay, and stubble. They were emphasizing personalities over Jesus. They were boasting about who they were following, which caused them to take their eyes off of Jesus. They were arrogantly claiming that they had wisdom that no one else had, worldly wisdom that brought wealth and power to the individual. But Paul's next statement was just as surprising and just as weighty. Paul says in verse 17, If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. Now, that doesn't sound like a very loving statement, does it? That sounds like a threat to me. <clears throat> Why would Paul use such harsh language? What, what does that actually mean? What does Paul mean by God will destroy that person? We as Christians don't like to hear language like this, and yet Paul is speaking to a church of believers. And so what is this all about? Here is what we know. How we treat the church the bride of Christ, how we treat one another, whether we live in unity or not, is of great concern to God. Why? Because the unity of the church points the world to God. That's why. We also know that God is a God of love. He's also a God of justice. Love and justice go hand in hand. And this verse clearly states that the punishment fits the crime, right? If any individual, whoever that may be, a ruler, a demon, a politician, a nation, or in this context, a preacher, an apostle, a planter, a water, a minister, a deacon, whatever, anyone inside or outside the church, if any individual destroys God's temple, it says God will destroy him. Again, this is not referring to salvation, right? God has already promised that those who believe in the death of his son are saved for eternity. Nothing you can separate us from the love of God. But here is the gist of the statement. It's a warning, right? When it comes to God's temple, the people among whom God has chosen to dwell, God loves them, and God is not messing around. His reputation, his name, and his glory, his son's bride are all at stake. God has promised to protect his church, to build his church, to provide for his church, to return for his church. And so if someone is going to mess with God's plan and God's own temple, God, in order to fulfill his promises to the church, is going to mess with that someone, to put it in our lingo. And here's why. Because God's temple is holy. God's temple is set apart for himself. God's temple is special and significant and set apart for his own purposes. And we are that temple. Now, I don't know about you, but that verse, rather than sound like a threat, sounds like an incredible promise to me, right? As his church, we are under the loving and righteous protection of Almighty God because he loves us as his temple, right? But it's also a warning to me. I should treat his people with respect and love and with grace. I don't want to do anything that would compromise the integrity of God's temple building by using wood, hay, and stubble of selfishness and pride, right? And this is Paul's purpose in using this language. Back in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says that we are sanctified, made holy in Christ Jesus, and we're called to be saints, holy, set apart ones, together with all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is division is not consistent with God's purpose for God's temple. Unity is. Because the unity of the church points the world to God. And in light of this truth, in light of the warning, in light of this promise, in light of this incredible reality that we are God's temple, Paul gives three commands. Now, for those of you who don't like the word command, he gives three strong imperatives. Sound better? A little easier on your ears? All right? Three strong imperative statements to us. And each begin with the word let. All right? Let no one deceive himself. Let everyone become a fool. And let no one boast in men. Verse 
18, let no one deceive himself. Now, to be honest, it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking we are better than we are, right? I remember being in middle school. I know, that's a long time ago. Uh, I thought I was an amazing basketball player. I would practice in the rain, in the snow, in the heat. I would play every chance I got, and I thought I was unstoppable. I would fantasize about being in the NBA. I'd be playing against Michael Jordan in my mind. I'd school him, and in my mind, I was incredibly talented, NBA talent, right? But outside observer would look at this guy in his driveway, and I was a kid missing shot after shot. I was deceiving myself. And we do the same sort of thing. We, we think to ourselves, I'm the wisest because I've studied this thing through and through, right? I got the corner on this. Or I have more experience in this than anyone else that I know. I have superior gift by God. Uh, of course, I'm right. And my favorite Christian speaker is right on. He doesn't deviate. He's faithful. I have looked and I've researched, right? But Paul is saying, don't deceive yourself, thinking you are so intelligent, you are so powerful, you alone are so spiritual, that you are so wise as to know how to navigate this fallen world all on your own, because you are not. Just look around at the mess that we humans make when we neglect God's word and forsake his way and ignore his warnings. The world's wisdom causes us to fall apart and in sin. The world's wisdom sets us headlong into an eternity in hell apart from the presence of God because worldly wisdom forsakes the crucifixion of Jesus. So the assumption here is that some of the Corinthian church were deceiving themselves into thinking they were wise and powerful, but they were making this determination based on the standard of the age, and thus they were delusional. They thought more highly of themselves than they should have. They thought of their own interests more than the interests of others. They thought that their power and their position needed to be held on to. They thought that they were more spiritual, had more spiritual knowledge than the rest. The issue was that each person pridefully thought that their apostle was superior and anyone that followed that apostle was wiser and more spiritual than others in the church. It was causing division. And so Paul says, let no one deceive himself. And then Paul gives them their second imperative, right? Verse 18b. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So to me, at face value, this is one of the strangest commands in all of the Bible, right? Let the person who thinks that he's wise become a fool, right? What a strange command. If anything, wouldn't we want to be wise as Christians so as to attract more people to the faith? Like, what is Paul saying? Why would anyone want to become a fool? And what does Paul mean by that? It goes back to chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly. Right? Verse 21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. Verse 25, chapter 1, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 27, God chose what is foolish. Right? God chose what is foolish, the crucifixion. In other words, if you want to be wise in God's book, then become a fool in the sense that you go back to the cross. Take on the mind of Christ and crucify your own passions and desires. For in following God's wisdom of crucifixion, you appear foolish to the world, but you will become wise in the Lord. Because here is the truth. The wisdom of this age is folly with God. God's not impressed with our worldly wisdom because it doesn't include him. God mocks our worldly wisdom because it is temporal and it is vain. God rejects our worldly wisdom because it leads away from him. In fact, it says, God catches the wise in their craftiness. This is a quote from Job, chapter 5, 
And I'm going to turn there and I'm going to read this passage to you because it's quite fascinating. Job chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 8 and following. I'm going to read verse 8 to 16. Eliphaz is the speaker here. He says, As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I contend my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. This is the only time that the book of Job is quoted in the New Testament. It's a very interesting quote. It says that God catches the wise or the cunning in their own craftiness, their own strategies. God does great, unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He provides rain. He sustains all life with food. God is the great reverser. He sets on high those who are lowly. Or as Paul puts it, God chooses the weak to shame the strong. God chooses what is foolish to shame the wise. God does what is opposite of human conventional wisdom. Right? God is in the business of demonstrating to the arrogant and the proud humans that they are not such a big deal. He frustrates the devices of the crafty. He catches the wise in their craftiness. He brings the schemes of the wily, literally the twisted, to an end. And you see, I like to explain it this way. God is for the underdog. God saves the needy. He gives hope to the poor. He rescues the perishing. But Paul doesn't stop at that quote. He drives his point home with a second quote. God knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Now this is from Psalm 94. And it's in verse 11 that the quote is, but I'm going to read the full 15 verses. Now, I read this because when Paul would quote a chapter or a, a part, portion from the Old Testament, he always had the full context in mind. He wouldn't proof text. He had the context. Now, when you listen to the context, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and the murder of the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who plants the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. <clears throat> God, in this passage, it talks of God's judgment and his justice. And you see, Paul knew this psalm. He was not proof texting with a phrase. He had the whole psalm in mind as he quoted it. A psalm that talks about how God did not turn a blind eye to pride and arrogance. He does not let uh, forget his people and his plan. God sees all. God hears all. God is the righteous judge. He will do what is right and just and loving and gracious all at the same time. And God does this, all of this in relation to his people, he says. His temple, us. 
It is a promise that God is ever-present, all-knowing, infinitely wise in the way in which he leads and he protects his covenant people, the church. It's also a warning that God is ever-present, all-knowing, infinitely wise in his way in which he leads and protects his covenant people, the church. Paul's point is that God's temple belongs to him and he dwells in our midst and as such, we are holy because he is holy. There's a joyful recognition that this is evidence of a loving and gracious God. There's also a sobering understanding that this isn't just a game. This is a new reality that we live in. The reality where God lovingly reverses the wisdom of this world. That through crucifixion comes resurrection. That through humility comes exaltation. That through weakness comes power. That through foolishness comes wisdom. Become a fool so that you become wise. Lose your life so that you can find it. To be great, you must be servant of all. And Paul has been faithful to point out through this entire letter that this has always been the way in which God works. God has always been about his glory, calling a people to himself, a holy people, a united people centered around him to represent him to all the earth. In fact, Paul in the first three chapters has cited six Old Testament passages related to God's infinite wisdom in separating his people and making them into his own temple. And the implications of all of this is that this is bigger than any one of us. God is to be glorified, not man. God is to be followed, not man. God is to be worshipped, not man. God is the one in whom we boast, not men, not in ourselves. And that's where he ends it, this, this portion in chapter 3. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ. And Christ is God. So this is Paul's summarizing command. Let no one deceive himself. Let everyone become a fool and let no one boast in men. In other words, Paul's saying, stop boasting in men as your leaders, boasting about your wisdom to choose them and arrogantly asserting that you belong to them. Because the truth is, you don't belong to them. If anything, they belong to you. Paul, Apollos, Peter, they are all servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are all servants through whom you believe. They are working for your growth. They are for you. They are yours. And Paul's reversing the human wisdom behind we belong to Paul and we belong to Apollos. Paul turns it around and says, no, they actually belong to you. And what is more, all things belong to you in Christ Jesus. The three most influential Christian leaders of the time, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, they belong to you, not the other way around. You don't belong to them because you, the church, are not their possession. You, the church, are God's possession, God's temple. And what is more, the three most powerful things in this created world belong to you. The world, life, and death. You don't belong to them, they belong to you. Jesus defeated the God of this world and its powers through the crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus gave all those who believe in him abundant life and eternal life. And Jesus defeated the last enemy, our most powerful enemy, death. And now because of Jesus, death is just a gateway to resurrection. And what is more, the two aspects of time, the present and the future, belong to you as well. You don't belong to them, they belong to you. The life that you now live in the flesh, in the present, we live by the faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And the future, for we are sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All these things are yours in Christ Jesus. O Corinthians, you are thinking too small when you think about yourself. 
You are using your worldly wisdom to try to understand something that's so much greater than you could ever imagine. You are Christ. You don't belong to Paul or Apollos or Peter. They are insignificant. You belong to Jesus Christ. And Christ belongs to God. The Corinthians were fighting over something so stupid, so trivial, which human leaders would they belong to, right? And this foolishness took their focus off the greater one to whom they actually belonged, God Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, church, you belong to God. You are His field. You are His temple. You are His chosen people. You are His holy nation. Let's not fight and squabble over who is doing what and who isn't. Let's not strive and quarrel over how we each think things should go. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we each have our own lofty spiritual wisdom that separates us above the rest. Let's not proudly grasp our positions or our perceived power. Let's not selfishly look out for our own interests. Let's not arrogantly assume our spirituality and our biblical knowledge is the standard for all others. Let's remember to whom we belong. Let's boast in the Lord. Let us look out for the interests of others. Let's set aside our positions and our powers. Let's humbly build up one another in the love of Jesus Christ. Let's become fools who live crucified lives. Let's be servants of all. Let's point to the, the lost to, and the dying to the God of the temple. As Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things... I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Sometimes it's hard to hear because it cuts us. But your word is a sword and it's supposed to. So thank you for the work that it does in our hearts and our lives. Lord, may your word and your spirit, and that's it, may your word and your spirit Take out any sinful, prideful attitudes in our hearts. And God, may you fill us with a humble heart that loves you, serves you, and is just about you, all about you. Because you are so worthy. You're worthy to receive praise and honor and glory and wisdom and power and strength and might and wealth. It's all about you. And God, I just thank you for the privilege that we have to be your children and that you graciously reconcile us to yourself, and that you reconcile us to one another, and that you give us the privilege of, represent, of allowing us to represent you to the world that's unfathomable. God, I pray that, that you would unite our hearts and our minds so that we do that well, and that we represent you, God Almighty, the Savior of the world, the loving, gracious God that you are to those who are lost and dying and need to know you as their Savior. God, use us. Bind us together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.